It is midnight. The rain is beating on the windows. I am calm. All is sleeping. Nevertheless, I get up and go to my desk. I can't sleep. My lamp sheds a soft and steady light. I have trimmed it. It will last till morning. I hear the eagle owl. What a terrible battle cry. Once I listened to it unmoved. My son is sleeping. Let him sleep. The night will come when he too, unable to sleep, will get up and go to his desk. I shall be forgotten. There's a book I've been thinking about recently. I've been just thinking about it and thinking about it and visiting it and visiting it and I don't I don't really know why and that book is Malloy by Samuel Beckett what I just read now was the first paragraph in the second part the second half of Malloy starts on page 125 in my version has a little uh, Roman numeral 2 over there and there's so much just going on in this in this first paragraph and every paragraph for me is as strong and as gripping it has the staccato rhythm of an interior monologue these sharp fleeting observations these thoughts that come in and out of our mind and unobserved because it's like Beckett is observing the part of the mind that usually is tasked with observing. There's like a, an amazing proximity going on in this entire book. It's unlike anything else I've ever read, where we're used to hearing people at some distance. We're used to seeing people at some distance, but we're, we're inside the mind of our narrator, Jacques Moran in the second half of the book. And being inside his mind is like a view, a perspective which is so unusual and so claustrophobic. And our narrator, Jacques Moran, in this middle-of-the-night insomniac state where he can't sleep, in this sort of staccato mode of observing, jotting down what he sees, what he observes, what he thinks. He does so much with time. He plays with time. It's midnight is the opening words of the section. He hears the, the sound of the eagle. He says, once I listened to it unmoved. A reflection on the past. Speaking about his son, the night will come when he too, unable to, to sleep, will get up and go to his desk, and I shall be forgotten. Playing with the tenses, the way the mind dances all over the place, past, present, and future. Our narrator goes on to say that he's, he's writing a report, that he's ruined, he says, and his son is ruined also. And we, we learn early on that he is a kind of secret agent, a kind of spy. And he was tasked with this mission to track down this one character named Aloy. And this mission ruined him. And this is his report 
this are, these are his notes on that story, that mission. Sunday morning. And he's eager to receive mass in church. That's very important to him. He says, the weather was fine. I watched absently the coming and going of my bees. I heard on the gravel the scampering of steps, the scampering steps of my son, caught up in I know not what fantasy of flight and pursuit. I called to him not to dirty himself. He did not answer. All was still, not a breath. From my neighbor's chimney the smoke rose straight and blue. None but tranquil sounds, the clicking of mallet and ball, a rake on pebbles, a distant lawnmower, the bell of my beloved church. And he goes on and on, and he concludes, In such surroundings slipped away my last moments of peace and happiness. And he goes on to describe a messenger approaches him in his garden, and it's the messenger who has this mission that he's going to send him on and he delivers this mission to our to our narrator and it's worth noting at this point uh before we go any further that jacques moran is a extremely unlikable character extremely and it's a sort of a strange paradox because we we're inside him we we're in his inner thoughts in a way and so we feel as close an affinity as you could feel with any fictional character. But he's a grotesque and extremely unpleasant character. He is abusive, verbally abusive to his son. He's completely tyrannical, completely self-absorbed. He has no thoughts to any other person, concern, considerations for anyone. Very narcissistic and controlling, and he's obsessed with spying and surveillance. Of course, that's that's part of his job, but he's always spying on his son. He says that his son spies on him, and if he wants to know if his son went to church or not, he's gonna, you know, he can talk to someone who, who also spies on all the people who go in and out of the church. When he's given this mission by this man named Gaber, he at first tries to refuse, and he tells us that he refuses because also he senses that there might be some flattery here because he's told by the messenger that only you can do it. The boss wanted it to be you. <laughs> and that's something that he's trying to draw out in this interaction. When the messenger finally leaves, he reaches out. He approaches the priest, Father Ambrose, to receive communion because he can't bear not having received communion. And he's like infinitely suspicious um, that, you know, Father Ambrose is judging him or is trying to lay some sort of trap for him. But eventually he uh, asks Father Ambrose and Father Ambrose gives it to him. And then he says he wants to leave. He has nothing else to say to Father Ambrose. But Father Ambrose holds on to him for a while. He wants to make some sort of small talk with our narrator, Moron. And... The small talk is so difficult and grating. So Moron is describing this interaction. I told him how worried I was about my hens, particularly my gray hen, which would neither brood 
nor lay, and for the past month and more had done nothing but sit with her arse in the dust from morning to night. Like Job, ha-ha, he said. I too said, ha-ha. What a joy it is to laugh from time to time, he said. Is it not, I said. It is peculiar to man, he said. So I have noticed, I said. A brief silence ensued. What do you feed her on, he said. Corn, chiefly, I said. Cooked or raw, he said. Both, I said. I added that she ate nothing any more. Nothing, he cried. Next to nothing, I said. Animals never laugh, he said. It takes us to find that funny, I said. What, he said? It takes us to find that funny, I said loudly. He mused. Christ never laughed either, he said, so far as we know. After that, Moron is preparing for his mission, for his trip. He is going to be taking his son. He tasks his son with preparing. Along the way, he is incredibly controlling and quite terrible towards his son. As he sets off on this mission, he begins to reflect on the nature of this mission, of his role, and he falls into one of these epistemological wormholes, epistemological black holes. And this happens a few times in this book. And I think a big part of what this book is about and a big part of why this book is so interesting to me is because it reflects on how limited human beings are, human agency is, human interactions are, and it reflects on how limited human understanding is and human thinking is. And it's like a meditation on the uselessness and the absurdity of trying to make sense of the world and navigating the world as human beings with our impoverished understandings and rationalities. And so it's a book about the understanding of this character, Moron, and his thinking and his intrusive thoughts. It's about his interiority. And the nature of that interiority is absurd and bizarre and inexplicable. So now Moron is telling us about his work and sort of the chain of command that he is subject to. The agent and the messenger. We agents never took anything in writing. Gaber was not an agent in the sense I was. Gaber was a messenger. He was therefore entitled to a notebook. A messenger had to be possessed of singular qualities. Good messengers were even more rare than good agents. I, who was an excellent agent, would have made but a sorry messenger. I often regretted it. Gaber was protected in numerous ways. He used a code incomprehensible to all but himself. Each messenger before being appointed, had to submit his code to the directorate. Gaber understood nothing about the messages he carried. Reflecting on them, he arrived at the most extravagantly false conclusions. Yes, it was not enough for him to understand nothing about them. He had to also believe 
he understood everything about them. This was not all. His memory was so bad that his messages had no existence in his head, but only in his notebook. He had only to close his notebook to become a moment later perfectly innocent as to its contents. And when I say that he reflected on his messages and drew conclusions from them, it was not as we would have reflected on them, you and I. The book closed, and probably the eyes too, but little by little as he read. Skipping a bit. And when I speak of agents and of messengers in the plural, it is with no guarantee of truth. For I had never seen any other messenger than Gaber, nor any other agent than myself. But I supposed we were not the only ones, and Gaber must have supposed the same. For the feeling that we were the only ones of our kind would, I believe, have been more than we could have borne. And it must have appeared natural to me that each agent had his own particular messenger, and to Gaber that each messenger had his own particular agent. Thus, I was able to say to Gaber, let him give this job to someone else. I don't want it. And Gaber was able to reply, he wants it to be you. And these last words, assuming Gaber had not invented them, especially to annoy me, had perhaps been uttered by the chief with the sole purpose of fostering our illusion, if it was one. All this is not very clear.